This is Radio Parallax, a slightly different perspective from a slightly different view, with topics that include matters in science, technology, history, politics, current events, and whatever we damn well please. And now the host of Radio Parallax, Douglas Everett. I thought we would start out today's program with a bit of weird science, actually some bad science, although I'm not sure there's any science involved in this at all when you get right down to it. But uh, this is the kind of story that Radio Parallax finds irresistible, so let's just jump into it, shall we? This item comes from Discover Magazine. Discover back in 2008 evidently profiled an amateur archaeologist from Bosnia named Sam Osmanagic, who claimed to have discovered the world's oldest and largest pyramids. They were located near the Bosnian city of Visoko and billed as the most monumental construction complex ever built on the face of the planet. These pyramids were allegedly made by a highly advanced civilization 12,000 years ago. At least that was the story 10 years ago. Discover notes that while Osmanagic had no evidence, he did gather worldwide media attention, hundreds of volunteers aiding his excavations, and legions of visitors to his so-called Pyramid Valley. The Bosnian government was thrilled with the boost in tourism and national pride, which were both welcome after the devastating Bosnian War of 1992-1995. Osmanagic became a national hero. The only problem, notes the magazine, was that experts didn't believe him. In 2006, the European Association of Archaeologists wrote an open letter to the Bosnian government denouncing the pyramids as a cruel hoax on an unsuspecting public. And the magazine notes what little credibility they may have had then is gone now. Ten years later, Osmanagic makes even more outlandish claims. He claims the largest pyramid is clad in concrete, superior to modern building materials, and sits over the most extensive underground network of tunnels ever discovered. This labyrinth purportedly features ceramic sculptures weighing several tons, the largest known in the ancient world. Except he doesn't appear to have any real evidence for any of this. But in spite of the challenges to his claims, he's decided to double down and go for it, saying he now knows why the Bosnian pyramids were built. They are energy amplifiers, capable of improving health and prolonging life, as well as communicating what he calls torsion fields, which travel actually much faster than the speed of light. To bolster his credentials, apparently, in the meantime, he's written a book uh, claiming that the Maya, the Maya civilization, came from the Pleiades constellation. I know a lot of UFO aficionados have pointed the Pleiades as a source of alien spacecraft, so maybe he's affiliated with that. I'm not sure. The magazine notes that while it appears that Osmanagic has not, in fact, discovered an ancient civilization with the secret to long life and free energy, he's found something arguably more valuable. He's uncovered a mechanism for generating free publicity. And I must say, the magazine published a photo of what, what does look to be a, a very large pyramid. Very large. Geologists, however, note that although these hills in Bosnia do resemble pyramids, they're just natural formations. And we must sadly move from that item of bad science into um, a review of what people are saying about Mars. Well, the efforts to what's called terraform Mars, make it to where humans could walk around on the planet without having a spacesuit. That'd be pretty cool, actually, if you could make that happen. Uh, On Earth, the atmospheric pressure 
works out to something like 760 millimeters of mercury. On Mars, the pressure is quite a bit less. In fact, it's about six or seven millimeters of mercury, meaning that it's the equivalent of being on planet Earth at about 100,000 feet. People wouldn't live very long with that level of atmospheric pressure. So a lot of folks have proposed going to Mars and setting up hydrogen bombs at the poles. Sure, what could possibly go wrong? <laughs> and in, the, in the, doing so, release enough CO2 and water, vapor that's uh, trapped in the poles, to raise the atmospheric pressure. Again, uh, an idea that might work somewhat in theory, but, you know, the devil's in the details. Chris McKay, talking about this at NASA Ames Research Center in California, said if there, if there is, a big if, if there is enough CO2, we could warm up Mars in 100 years once we start. McKay adds, we know how to warm up planets. We're doing it here on Earth. The fundamental question is, is there enough stuff on Mars? And now Bruce Jakowski at the University of Colorado Boulder and Christopher Edwards at Northern Arizona University used results from several spacecraft to figure out whether moving all of Mars' CO2 from the ground into the atmosphere could create a high enough temperature and pressure for life. And the answer apparently is no way. According to their estimates, there's only enough CO2 in the Martian polar ice caps, dust, and rocks to raise the pressure on the Martian surface to about... 20 millibars compared to 6 millibars. We have about 1,000 millibars here. I know I'm jumping from bars and millibars from millimeters of mercury, but suffice it to say, 20 millibars is 1 50th of what we have here on planet Earth. It's about maybe triple of what Mars has now. That is still way, way short of what's needed to walk around, you know, with without a bulky spacesuit. Now, you still wouldn't be able to breathe the air on Mars if it's all CO2, but if there was enough atmospheric pressure, you wouldn't have to be, you know, dressed like Buzz Aldrin hopping around on the moon, which would be kind of convenient for, you know, people strolling about the Martian surface. Of course, having said that, you should keep in mind that Mars does not have an ozone layer, so walking around on the Martian surface would get you blasted with quite a bit more radiation than it would here on Earth, so you'd probably need... Yeah, a bulkier spacesuit. This is not looking good. There's still some wriggle room in the data. You know, we don't know exactly how much CO2 and, you know, water there is on Mars. We're still looking at that. Anyway, the jury is still out on on this. Uh, we talked about this subject at length a few weeks ago, the subject of uh, hidden water on Mars and hidden water on Earth, or at least water that was blockaded in giant floods, etc. We would refer you to our archives if you would like to review that, and we hope you would. But uh, as a segue to that discussion, I must say I caught the BBC's Blue Planet 2 while on vacation a a week or so ago and was pretty knocked out at how David Attenborough and company have done it again. The photography they have obtained, it's just, it's it's astonishing. It is absolutely astonishing. Now, uh, a friend of mine... uh, happened to have uh, the collection of the, the original Blue Planet done on uh, by the BBC back in 2001. And um, we took a look at the section on the deep sea. It struck me as how weird it is to contemplate that 60% of our planet's surface here on planet Earth, 60% of it involves the ocean that is more than a mile deep which is a rather startling statistic if you think about it, because um, we don't know that much about the deep ocean. It's uh, the surface of it down, a mile down or more, as deep as seven miles down in some cases, is is less well-known 
to we humans than the surface of the moon. We've only explored a tiny amount of it. We do have radar tracings of it, so we know how deep it is. We know the general contours of it. But what does it actually look like? Well, we haven't gone down there with cameras to photograph more than like something like 1% of it. And I, I remember seeing this 17 years ago, whatever it was, and thinking it was pretty cool then. But it's just as cool now to review the fact that sperm whales are cruising around the surface of the Earth and decide to dive down, oh, 3,000 feet when it comes time to feed. We've always known that sperm whales are down there eating giant squid, but how many giant squid can there be? I mean, very basic questions we don't have answers to. Anyway, we probably need to review the BBC's original uh, Blue Planet and then take a look at Blue Planet 2 and talk about it. It's probably worth a good hour. we just got to find the right guest to, uh, to, to go over this with us. But we're looking. We're, we're holding auditions. Any of you out there uh, think you can do it? If you do, drop us a line at info at radioparallax.com. And to return to the opening strains of Weird Science, the same issue of Discover, and we, we kind of badmouthed Discover Magazine some time ago in this program, but they've, they appear to have made a comeback. They've got some pretty interesting stuff of late, um, most particularly the article titled Hopeful Monsters from the current issue of the magazine. Piece by Bridget Alex is subtitled As Evidence of Hybrids in Our Family Tree Grows, Researchers Rethink the Species concept. That title, Hopeful Monsters, comes from a term that a scientist has placed upon hybrid animals. And uh, by way of review, for those of you who are a little hazy on their biological sciences, uh, one of the definitions of a species, in, which is considered to be the only valid classification out there, I mean, everything else is a, is a guesstimation of how closely related plants and animals and different aspects of life are to one another, but the species was felt to be the only one that's solid because you have a way of checking it. If you're of one species, you can't breed with another species, and that is why you are distinct. The problem with this is, and, and, and this, is, this article really struck me between the eyes because this is a problem that's been laying in plain sight since Charles Darwin which has to do with the fact that, yes, you can start out to make a different species, and when you've completed the process through the various means by which organisms change over time, then at some point you have a legitimate species A and species B, which are, by their nature, different species because they can't breed anymore. Well, along that way of forming a different species, if, when you haven't drifted far enough apart, you can still mate, and you can still form hybrids, which is kind of, let's say, a gray area of biology. The article makes reference to why we're concerned about this in the human species, because we've looked back now with, with the powerful tools we have at DNA analysis, and have discovered that what used to be different species of humans, such as us, Homo sapiens, and the Neanderthals, were close enough to have interbred. The same can be said about the rather mysterious branch of humanity known only as the Denisovans, which we only know from a couple of 
bones and teeth in a cave in the Altai Mountains in Siberia. We know that the Neanderthals and the Denisovans interbred, and they interbred many times from 100,000 to 40,000 years ago. And uh, the Denisovans also looked up with our distant lineages because their genes have been preserved in certain portions of humanity. Humans found in Melanesia, oddly enough. I mean, somehow, as Homo sapiens were moving east and passing through Siberia on the way to <laughs> the, the Pacific Ocean, uh, there was, there was some, let's just say there was some interbreeding going on. But for my money, this is a hell of a lot more important than just looking at, you know, Homo sapiens. This article quotes Rebecca Ackerman, who is a biological anthropologist from the University of Cape Town in South Africa, saying that when it comes to species, forget everything you learned in high school. In fact, the realization is now dawning that the biological species concept does not work for the vast majority of life that has existed. Referring, of course, to organisms that don't reproduce sexually. The species concept is a pretty tough thing when it comes to, uh, to organisms that reproduce asexually because, well, the whole concept is based on being able to crossbreed. If you're not crossbreeding at all, well, then where do you go? But the main point here is that, you know, as this process is underway, as descendants are branching off and, and, and diverging from one another, genes can still be exchanged, even if we're calling them a different species. Interbreeding has now been detected in 10% of animal species and 25% of primates, that's us, including ongoing crosses between distant relatives such as gelata and baboon monkeys whose last common ancestor lived 4 million years ago. That's a lot of biological divergence over 4 million years and yet they're still similar enough to mate up and produce a viable offspring. Exploring this subject, Michael Arnold, who is a researcher at the University of Georgia, an evolutionary biologist, uh, well, he wrote a book 10 years ago that argued that hybridization likely occurred in human evolution. He got some pretty scathing reviews from anthropologists at the time. But now that we've done the sequencing of DNA of Neanderthals, Denisovans, us, etc., we know that, in fact, it did happen. For his part, Arnold said, I tried not to feel too smug because I've been so wrong about so many other things in my scientific career. The article goes on to discuss research by Jenny Tung, biological anthropologist at Duke University. She studies baboons in Kenya's Amboseli Basin, and particularly a couple of different species of baboons, the yellow baboon and the anubis baboon. That lineage split, as far as we can estimate, about 1.4 million years ago, and yet, yet they're able to breed and produce hybrids um, quite easily. This is where it starts to get really interesting. The team studied these Amboseli um, Valley baboons and found that the baboons there had 12 to 72% anubis ancestry, including individuals that looked like they were pure examples of the yellow baboon species. Now, people have been studying these baboons for quite a while and you know, trying to make guesstimations about who's what. And, uh, well, again, a lot of times baboons that appear to be one species or the other were, in fact, hybrids. And here's where it gets more interesting. Hybrids are not simply intermediates of the two parent species. They do frequently have abnormalities, such as extra or misaligned teeth, which makes sense biologically. So when you make uh, this hybrid 
between two different species. The offspring can resemble one parent or can look like a blend. Or it is noted because of the admixture of the DNA, take on forms that are unlike either parent. This admixture of genes allows species to swap and mix their genes, and the novel traits resulting in these, quote, hopeful monsters, unquote, could be useful evolutionary shortcuts, especially for our ancestors. This is pretty interesting stuff. Now, none of this is saying that Charles Darwin is wrong by any stretch of the imagination. Darwin just didn't have modern biological tools at his disposal, and what he guessed were the reasons that would explain how species diverge. You know, were some pretty good guesses, but, you know, like everything else in science, they're just good guesses. I mean, I'm, I'm really fascinated by the, the idea here that you could form a hybrid of two species, and through some happenstance, turns out that the hybrid is much more fit than either of the parent species, and then takes over and goes in a new direction. If there's any evolutionary biologists out uh, listening to this, uh, be sure to drop us a line at info at radioparallax.com and, and offer any corrections to what I might have misspoken here and, uh, and uh, throw your opinion into the mix. This, this is uh, pretty cool stuff. And since we're talking about cool stuff that's related to Homo sapiens, let's, uh, let's take a segue into a course they're offering at Yale University right now that is described as the most talked-about college course in America. In the last word of the last week's edition of The Week, an excerpt from New York Magazine delves into the, the subject of this particular class, and I think we should too. The instructor is Professor Lori Santos. She is described as not setting out to create the most popular course in the history of Yale. She just wanted her students to be happy. The course is Psych 157, Psychology and the Good Life. It is so wildly popular with over 1,200 enrolled students that people are speculating that uh, Dr. Santos must be on to something. She notes that college students are much more overwhelmed, much more stressed, much more anxious, and much more depressed than they've ever been. She said, I think we really have a crisis writ large at colleges and how students are doing in terms of self-care and mental health. Adding, sadly, I don't think it's just in colleges. Surveying colleges, the American College of Health Associations, say that 52% of college students report feeling hopeless. 39% suffered from such severe depression they had found it difficult to function at some point during the previous year. So in the face of this epidemic of unhappiness, Santos decided to design a course in positive psychology, which is the field of study focusing on well-being as opposed to psychological dysfunction, which is, I'm glad someone finally got around to establishing what, you know, how we can define mental health. That's, that's useful. You certainly would have to figure that, you know, happiness would play a prominent role in what would constitute mental health. If you're a very happy person, well, you, 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 you have to be somewhat mentally healthy, wouldn't you think? In her very first lecture, Santos emphasizes to her class she wants to teach them not just the science of happiness, but the practice of happiness. And happiness, it turns out, doesn't take practice. But first, you have to learn what it is. The article notes that, well, if you don't have four months or Yale student ID to take the entire course, uh, which most of us do not, let's face it, they've condensed some of the highlights uh, for our benefit in their last word briefing section. 
The article notes that you can take a survey to assess your own level of happiness. It's served up by the University of Pennsylvania, titled Authentic Happiness Inventory. It's free online. I, I went to go do this and realized that I had to enter a bunch of data about myself, and I decided to not do so. Not in the wake of the whole Cambridge Analytica, Facebook, uh, psychological profiling scandal currently raging around this country. But uh, you might want to try it, dear listener. Here's your discretion. Did it make you unhappy not to be able to do it? <laughs> yes, it actually made me somewhat unhappy not to conduct the survey. So it works. <laughs> At any rate, as, by way of practical advice, they suggest that you make a short list of things you think would make you happier. They can be big things, a raise, moving to a new city, a new partner, or small things, whatever looks good right now in the vending machine. And they say, all right, if you finish your list, let's have a look. Author says, I have my red pen out. Okay, wrong, 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 wrong. Nearly everything you think that will make you happier won't. Because nearly everything you're likely to list, assuming, of course, your basic life needs are taken care of, is some circumstantial change, more money, a different home, different job, a long vacation, or even that enticing snack that lies just beyond the vending machine glass. Your mind is constantly telling you that if you just had those things, you'd finally, truly, unequivocally be happy. But your mind is wrong, and science is right. Why is that? Well, they say, well, let's go to lecture number two. In the second lecture, Santos looks at the work of Lonya Subormiski, a psychologist at the University of California, Riverside. She's known for her thought experiments on what affects our happiness. She expresses it as a pie chart. She proposes that about 50% of happiness is determined by your genes, which, sad to note, is totally out of your control. About 10% of it is determined by circumstance, which is also somewhat out of your control. The final 40%, however, is determined by your own thoughts, actions, and attitudes, which is, we would note, entirely within your control. As they look into it, they note that what we believe would make huge differences in our lives actually, according to scientific research, makes only a small difference. While, meanwhile, we overlook the true source of personal happiness and well-being. What are those? Well, the best way psychologists have found to determine what makes people happy is to reverse engineer happiness by studying habits of people who already identify themselves as happy. There are certain habits that have been shown to be consistent among happy people. Happy people devote time to family and friends. Happy people practice gratitude. Happy people practice optimism. Happy people are physically active. Happy people savor life's pleasures and try to live in the present moment. The question, of course, arises in this discussion, what about money? Money can't buy happiness is, of course, an aphorism you learn about the same time you're old enough to read your first fortune cookie. But, uh, <laughs> but says the article, money can buy happiness, right? Otherwise, why are we so obsessed with it? To understand why we overvalue the role of money in happiness... The article suggests we should skip ahead to a special event scheduled on the syllabus for right about the midterm time. To quote from the article, Pop quiz, if you suddenly found you had an extra $100, what would you do with it? Now, what would you do if you suddenly found you had an extra hour of time? With the money, chances are you'd be inclined to use it on a treat, buy something you did not budget for otherwise, rather than paying off an existing debt. With time, it's the opposite there's a good chance you'd use that hour to catch up on work rather than go for a walk or visit a museum. 
you'd otherwise not have time to do. The article notes that as a time-starved New Yorker, I found this reversal particularly intriguing. 60% of working parents report feeling always rushed. 80% of working adults, with or without children, would like to have more time to spend with loved ones. In psychology, this sense of not having enough time is known as time famine. The sense of having plenty of time is called time affluence. Affluence is a fitting analogy, says the article, as time and money are both commodities. We both see them as literally equivalent. Time is money. We think of both as scarce and therefore valuable. We spend and waste and save both of them. Yet it turns out we do a terrible job of valuing time and money correctly, in part because we don't understand the kind of commodities there really are. And using an economic model, they note that to understand the crucial differences, you should note that money is extremely elastic. That is, you can theoretically accumulate an infinite amount of it, and your income fluctuates at different points in your life. Time, by contrast, is intrinsically inelastic. You cannot accumulate more of it, and you've never had any less of it. You get the same amount of minutes and hours in every day of your life. By that reasoning, an hour should be much more valuable than a dollar. Yet... We consistently behave as if the opposite were true. For example, would you accept a new job with 20% higher salary if it meant 25% longer work week or a 50% longer commute? If so, you're valuing your monetary affluence over your time affluence. I think this explains a lot of the stupidity going on in Silicon Valley right now as these huge salaries down there are causing people to flock to the area take this high-paying job, and then have to face the housing crunch that results from this and have to deal with the long, tedious commutes that also result from this. But I digress. The article cites another study where um, scientists engineered an experiment which participants were offered $40 and required to spend it on a time-saving purchase of their own devising. Some ordered takeout, some used the money on a house cleaner, some employed a neighborhood kid to finish up their yard work. Later, later, the same participants were offered another $40, this time with the instruction they had to spend it on a material good like a book or an item of clothing. The test subjects were reliably happier when they spent the money to buy time, and they reported that their happiness was directly associated with that alleviation of time pressure. Anyway, pretty interesting stuff. We could probably spend hours talking about it. And we would note that would probably not be time wasted. All right, we've got just a few minutes left uh, on this segment. I'm going to terminate our talking about science, although I have a fistful of other articles we could discuss. We'll we'll get to them uh, in next week's show. And yes, we're planning to have two shows in a row for your listening pleasure this week and next because, well, the material does pile up. Here's a small item about someone who generated a significant amount of unhappiness that I might tack on to the previous discussion. The item is as follows. A Tennessee man ended up in handcuffs after he ditched his date, stole her car, and used it to take another woman on another date. (laughs) Evidently, a woman named Faith Pugh was out with Kelton Griffith, age 21, in her Volvo a week ago when he asked her to stop and buy him a cigar. When she came out, Griffin and the car were gone. Soon after, Pugh got a text from her godsister saying Griffith was taking her to a drive-in movie in the Volvo. 
And yes, police arrested Griffith at the drive-in. Said Pew, I never want to speak to him ever again. Come on, give a guy a second chance. Let us take a short break. You're listening to Radio Parallax. I'm your host, Douglas Everett. we got lots more. Stick around. Radio 